Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today's show is dedicated to vaccines. Over the years, Skylar and I have engaged in animated discussions around the dinner table about vaccines, about their utility, their safety, the social contract, big pharma, the recommended CDC schedule, and other topics. Now, since the dawn of immunization, there has always been a movement that identifies as either anti-vax or vaccine skeptical. And this movement and conversation has grown in size and intensity since COVID, particularly on social media. I have tried to harvest a lot of the questions that seem to arise over and over. What is the prevalence of vaccine injury? Is there a link between immunization and autism? Why does big pharma have immunity from class action lawsuits? Why do vaccines contain compounds like thimerosal or aluminum? And are there any side effects associated with these ingredients? How are vaccines tested prior to coming to market? What is a randomized double-blind study? And what about the COVID vaccine? How are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines different from past vaccines? What is messenger RNA? And how were these COVID vaccines tested? What were the results of those clinical trials? These are many of the same questions that I attempted to pose to Robert Kennedy when he was on the show a few months ago. And they are among the questions that I explore today with my guest, Jonathan Berman. Now, Jonathan has a PhD in physiology. He is a scientist, author, and founder of the March for Science. His recent book is entitled Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement. Now, hold on. If you're a vaccine skeptic, don't turn this off right away. Give it a chance. Jonathan does not malign or mock people that are asking thoughtful questions about vaccines. Instead, he approaches this topic with thoughtfulness and empathy while rigorously adhering to data. This is a long interview, and in it we cover many of the topics I previously referred to, as well as discussing broadly the history of infectious disease and its relationship to vaccines, the discovery and mishaps associated with the polio vaccine in the 1950s, Andrew Wakefield and his paper on MMR that was published and subsequently retracted by The Lancet, and finally, we explore the nuanced moral dimensions of vaccination. So there's a lot here, and it's pretty dense. But if you're interested in this topic, wherever you stand on vaccines, there is a lot to get out of this episode. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Berman. I am Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. I'm not a vaccinologist. Um, I'm a, I am a, a PhD physiologist. I study sodium channels in the kidney that deal with hypertension. And so you know, my lab, um, is, I'm actually working on some COVID-related projects right now. As it turns out um, that 
um, there's there there is actually some some synchronicity between the ion channel I study and and COVID, but uh, I I started my my most public thing I've done was the March for Science, um, which was about almost four years ago. Um, I saw the inauguration of Donald Trump and. One of the first things he did was appoint a climate change denialist to run the EPA. And I saw the Women's March, and you know, I'm, I'm not a woman, but I, I felt you know, strongly that Trump was, was making choices that, uh, that made it clear that the administration was going to spend four years ignoring science, ignoring um, the advice of scientists and making decisions that could potentially be uh, disastrous with regard to, um, to, to to any sort of governmental regulation or, or governmental process that involves science, which is quite a lot of them. Um, so I, I, I saw someone else saying something similar on Reddit. And so I, I made a Twitter page and a Facebook page and, and started calling it the scientists march on Washington. And so, so I kind of forgot about it because, you know, yeah, well, no one will find it. And then someone wrote to me um, and said, uh, Hey, you know, I, I, this is a great idea. Maybe I can do your social media. And I kind of lied to him. And, uh, and I said, well, that's great. There's only a few of us now, um, but we're, uh, we, you know, we'll hopefully put something together. So he joined and, and took over he started the Facebook. Um, I stayed on Twitter, and then somehow it sort of caught fire and became a, a global thing, um, and other people joined in. And so, my experience with that movement um, was fine. Was that there were a lot of people who would say, "I'm I'm pro science. I you know, I believe in climate change is important for the government to to make good decisions there." But then they would also um, say things that made it clear to me that they were anti-vaccine. Uh, and, and I had this kind of perception that there were anti-vaxxers, but they were anti-science. Uh, and that challenged my assumption there. Uh, and I wanted to explore that. Hmm. So this started as, as sort of uh, my deep dive into who are anti-vaxxers, what do they believe in, in trying to understand where they're coming from? How can someone who's, who, who says they're a science advocate uh, believe something that goes against what science says is true? Uh, and, and so I, I, I approached it as uh, not, you know, I'm going to set out to debunk the anti-vaccine movement, but more as, I'm going to set out to understand from my own outside perspective, which disagrees with, with their perspective, but set out to understand the anti-vaccine movement. Um, and you know, I, I, I can't write a, a book that's, that's neutral because I'm not neutral and, and no one ever is. And so my, um, my interpretation of the data ends up working its way in there. And, and so at, as the, the book became refined. It became challenging the anti-vaccine movement. Um, 
which uh, which is was sort of um, not not my intent to 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 be accusatory. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that the mo- majority of people who have vaccine skepticism, um, there are a lot of people who say, "Well, I don't want to be called an anti-vaxer," um, and the majority of people who have questions about um about vaccines are not necessarily anti-science like i would have assumed um but i do think they make certain mistakes in the way that they interpret the science the sources of information that they find trustworthy um and so forth so rather than being a vaccinologist writing about vaccines i'm I am a scientist, um, but I'm, I'm uh, I guess, a movement organizer writing about a movement um, was how I saw my 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 qualification to work on it. Right. It's, it's an interesting approach to uh, the attempt to kind of understand and dissect the psychology that might uh, bias someone one way or another. Um, and I suppose kind of in your deep dive research, um, to better understand that psychology, you had to do quite a bit of kind of historical excavating around sort of the nature of infectious disease and its relationship to the development of vaccines. So so maybe you could just spend a few minutes, um, talking from a more broad historical assessment around kind of uh, the development of vaccines in relationship to kind of smallpox and, and polio. And, and maybe we can even use polio sort of as an example of, of how some skepticism um, began to arise. Okay. Well, one of the things that I think it first occurred to me was in in almost every article you see about the anti-vaccine movement, there's a line that is essentially the anti-vaccine movement started in 1998 with Andrew Wakefield. And, or the modern anti-vaccine movement started in 1998 with Andrew Wakefield. And I guess we'll talk about him a little bit more later, but that's really not true. And you can find anti-vaccine sentiment in 1997 and in 1990 and in 1890. And in the the reading of literature around it, the further you go back into the history of vaccines, the more you see that, well, anti-vaccine sentiment started at the exact same time a vaccine was invented uh, and it made almost the exact same arguments back then that it does now. And and there's actual incredible parallelism between uh, the things people were saying in 1850 um, and 2020 or, or, or 2018, I guess when I was writing it, um, so I, I think that 
that is very informative to us from the perspective of trying to understand where um, anti-vax people, where the skepticism comes from, because it tells us a few things. The first being that people aren't objecting to any specific thing in the vaccines, um, because the 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 vaccine that was administered against polio at the end of the 18th century and early 19th century, it has absolutely no relationship to the components that are in the, the coronavirus vaccines. And yet um, the exact same categories of arguments are being made. The exact same objections are being made. Um, people are are responding in exactly the same way to an almost entirely unrelated technology. Um, it shares the name vaccine, um, and it, it shares to some degree a similar function, but otherwise almost completely unrelated. Um, so, so to see you know some of the same. Um, things being said back then as are said now that says that when someone says they're worried about the the mercury in, in a vaccine um, but they also say that about vaccines without mercury and they say they're worried about the person getting the vaccine turning into a cow which was a concern people actually had they aren't actually worried about those things they have some underlying fear or concern that is driving their um, their rejection of this technology. So the more important question then, I think, once you've done this deep dive and, and seen this parallelism, more important question is, uh, what are the underlying fears and what are the underlying concerns that are driving people to... Um, to reach these conclusions. Um, so that's where it, I kind of started to touch onto the, some of the psychological literature or the questions about um, how people think. Um, so why, why is it that we have large amounts of vaccine doubt, but we also have a lot of countries with high vaccine doubt, but also high vaccination rates? Why is there that disparity? Um, questions like how does someone go from someone with, you know, just a, a degree of skepticism, maybe they've heard, you know, they've seen a, a post on Facebook about the COVID vaccine and Bell's palsy. And then how do they go from that to, um, to, to being a member of 10 groups on Facebook and Twitter and, and making their own memes and, 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 you know, going to extreme actions like, throwing blood on, on lawmakers like some anti-vaccine activists have done. Um, and questions about demographics, like who who are in the anti-vaccine movement, what level of education do they have, what's their political affiliation, um, and how does that differ from people who are under-vaccinated? Um, and that's a different group um, because there's, there's actually a lot more people who who want to be vaccinated but don't have access to vaccines through through healthcare, um, and that kind of opens other questions about um, racial justice and, and social justice. Uh, 
so I think I think those are kind of the interesting questions um, that come up when you take the the, the long view, uh, the long historic view of, of vaccination. Um, you talked about polio being an example. Uh, well, I think one of the one of the um, the differences we see now between polio and and, and COVID is that the the polio vaccine came after decades or almost decades of of people living in fear of polio and, and people uh, experiencing firsthand uh, the the disability and that that polio can cause and, and fear of polio. And when it when the polio vaccine eventually became available, uh, people would wait in long lines to receive it, and they were um, very excited to be vaccinated and to finally be safe. Um, and and now we're, we've seen uh, with the co- coronavirus vaccine, uh, people were anticipating it. Um, a, a misinformation campaign ramped up, and. Now there's there's a lot of people who are afraid of it um, for what are probably not very good reasons. Uh, and now uh, there's a job to be done sort of trying to, to help people address the fears that are underlying those reasons um, in a way that for the most part didn't have to happen, didn't happen with the, the polio vaccine. Um, and I think another salient feature of, of polio vaccine was that um, it drove a lot of later anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, there was an incident called the the Cutter and Wyeth Labs um, disaster, the incident Cutter Wyeth Labs, right. where a large number of doses of a polio vaccine were improperly inactivated. Um, so the there there are two polio vaccines. Um, one is an attenuated virus and one is a killed virus. And in the uh, the killed virus, which was uh, what Salk worked on and which was in play here, a, a chemical is added to a sample of the virus to cross-link the proteins and make them unable to infect human cells. And that was done improperly in the lab and so doses went out of that vaccine uh, that had uh, that had live polio in it, and it caused uh, a paralysis in about in one limb uh, at the injection site of about two hundred people. Uh, and that now the vaccine saved many thousands more lives than that um, into millions potentially. But um, th- that still leaves the question of people have had now this this vaccine that was administered to them for the public good, um, and yet they're the ones who are bearing the the damage from from what happened. So yeah, that you know that 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 led. You know, why should we take a risk on behalf of the public, but have private ownership of the, the consequences? Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the it also brings up other moral and ethical questions 
I suppose specifically in regards to the Hippocratic Oath. And I mean, Salk, in, in some of my research for this interview, I, um, I landed on a Jonas Salk quote, one that I assume is pretty famous and you're probably familiar with, that, you know, addresses some of his, um, you know, reticence around the massive trials that um, that happened around the around the the trials. Uh, I think that was the March of Dimes sponsored those first IPV trials. You know, to you know four hundred thousand people, um, and that just the nature of a double blind clinical trial is a moral conundrum in itself just because it it it, it administers a placebo to 50% of that group um, and you know as it turned out the results of, of that polio trial were excellent but it still led to i think it was you know 36 people you know getting kids getting paralyzed and you know um, I think the quote was something like, uh, you know, that we worship science, that the worship of science involves the sacrifice of humanitarian principles on the altar of rigid methodology, that, you know, we are all, we are all that the, the story of vaccines may be one that, that kind of values the needs of the many, sometimes at the expense of the few. And, um, I wonder if you could sort of address that from kind of a moral and ethical dimension and, and it might be worthwhile to just kind of explain how double blind clinical trials actually work um, when they're administered properly. Well, Spock would approve. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I get to what a, a double blind trial is. Um, it's a solution to a problem that's actually really interesting in science, which is the placebo effect. And the placebo effect is that when you do a fake treatment to someone, uh, it actually can make them better. Uh, and in fact, sometimes you can do a fake treatment to someone and they can know it's a fake treatment and it still makes them better. Um, and that, <laughs> that drives me insane. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but in fact, um, when people are talk about the, the power of the mind to affect the body, um, to some degree, that's a real thing. Um, and your, your health outcomes depend on, on what's going on in your mind. And, and so, the placebo effect means that when we administer um, a vaccine dose to you and you know you've gotten the vaccine dose, that means we don't know if you if you later don't get sick, if it's because you've changed your behavior in some way or there was some psychological effect that had an effect on your physiology that then made you less susceptible or or some, or some other cause. And what we really want to know is, does the, the mechanical action of vaccinating you make you, you better? So what they started doing was single blinding. And single blinding, you 
don't tell a person if they're getting, say, the coronavirus vaccine or a flu shot. Um, and so you you might get one or the other. And then you, you tabulate the data and you see who got coronavirus in this time period. Um, and the that that eliminates the possibility that someone who who that someone is having this placebo effect instead of the actual effect of the treatment um now it gets even hairier because um there's something called the clever hans effect which is named after a horse named clever hans and clever hans um was it was sort of toured around as a counting horse, and he was able to do math by stamping his hoof. You would say, "What's what's three plus four? And he would stamp his hoof seven times, and you would say, "What's three minus one? And he would stamp his hoof twice, and everyone was was amazed by this counting horse. And it turned out that Clever uh, Hans' owner was, without knowing it, signaling to the horse how many times to stamp his hoof. Um, and so the same kind of thing can happen in, in trials where the person administering a treatment, um, the, the physician um, or the nurse can, can indicate to you whether or not you're a part of the treatment or control group in ways that are totally unconscious. So in a double blind trial, both the, the person who is receiving the treatment and the person giving the treatment are blinded, meaning they do not see whether or not it's treatment or control. So they don't know if you're getting COVID vaccine or flu vaccine. Um, so that means that uh, so that that means that you have sort of eliminated this variable of the placebo effect, which um, which you would think, well, this this is not that important, right? Um, this is a relatively small effect. Well, it turns out when you're looking for at, at the numbers that come out of this kind of trial, placebo effects can actually be really big. Um, and placebo effects sort of infiltrate their way into other kinds of study. And, and so that's why you see um, studies of things that don't actually work appearing to work sometimes because um, there's a placebo effect and there's whole branches of, of, of healing that any actual healing that occurs through those methods is, is placebo effect. Um, right. And I, I suppose as it pertains specifically to the um, third stage trials that Pfizer, for example, administered, uh, to my understanding, there are about 42 or 44,000 people in that trial. Half of them got the vaccine. Half of them got the placebo. It was double blind, so the administrator and the, the, the receiver, receptor of the vaccine, neither knew um, what they were getting or what they were administering. And then for it to be an effective trial, there needs to be enough of the, of the pathogen in the environment and with COVID-19 or with SARS-CoV-2, there was. And so they ran the trial until 100 people tested positive 
for COVID-19. And then they kind of pull back the curtain on who got what. And it turned out, at least in those first results, that of about more or less out of that 100 people, you know, 90 some out of Ninety some odd people out of that hundred had received the placebo and not the vaccine, which is how they determined the percentage effectiveness of the vaccine. Is, is that a correct understanding? Yeah, um, that's that. I'd say that's that's pretty correct. Um, so you had about twenty two thousand ish in each group. Um, and they they tracked people who tested positive for coronavirus, um, and it was a relatively small number. Um, and the you can look at the graph from the from the trial over the course of the over the course of the the trial period, and um, the the unvaccinated group um, continues to develop new cases at a fairly steady pace. Um, and they're matched almost case for case by the other group um, until about 14 days after um, after the, the first vaccination, at which point the infection rate drops to almost zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where they diverge. Uh, and then... Um, and and that kind of makes sense that there would be an immune response that would take a couple of days, and then um, people who had already been infected would start to show symptoms, and then would be tested. Uh, and so uh, they they did their calculation, um, including those people in those first few days, um, which probably in, in in fact indicated suggested this was a little bit less effective than. It, than it probably actually is. Uh, right. So in terms of other instances that have served to undermine confidence in the efficacy of vaccines, you know, there have been some kind of highlights um, over, I guess, I suppose the last half century. Um, I know, you know, President Ford engaged in, in what might be determined sort of a rushed vaccine, a swine flu vaccine in 1976. Um, there was uh, the Denvaxia vaccine um, that was distributed in the Philippines that produced some vaccine at, uh, attributable severe dengue. Um, and so I wonder... It, it, and that sort of in combination to claims of vaccine injury that that people have made. And I wonder if you could put that whole thing in perspective around kind of the efficacy of vaccines as it relates to kind of smallpox and, and polio, and then these other examples um, where vaccines seem to have caused harm and and perhaps address to what degree you know kind of vaccine injury does exist with within that subset yeah so i think the important thing to keep in mind is the large numbers we're dealing with um 
So what happened with Ford, um, there was predicted to be an outbreak of a particular strain of flu um, because there had been a few cases that that had occurred um, that seemed to be disconnected. So there seemed to be community transmission of this flu and it was predicted to turn into an outbreak. So um, they, uh, they did something that didn't happen with the COVID vaccine, which was they bypassed some of the steps that we would now do prior to approval. And they vaccinated uh, millions of people and they saw an increase in the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now it only increased, but to, you know, the, the, the relative risk increased, but the absolute risk went from something like zero to only slightly greater than zero. So it's something like one in a hundred thousand, one in 200,000 to something like one in 100,000. Um, that sounds like, well, your risk is doubled. Um, well, yeah, but, but not, but you're still probably okay. Um, in almost all cases. Um, and then, um, look at other cases where there's something like the, the, the smallpox vaccine. Um, you know, smallpox was something that had killed, um, probably more humans than, than anything else in history. It had, um, caused people to, to live with blindness and, and pockmarks and, and live in, in fear and, and, if you had didn't die from it, there's a good chance your children would die from it or your neighbors or your friends. There was this sort of the scourge on humanity that uh, we were able to wipe out. Um, so smallpox no longer exists uh, except for some samples that have been saved in lab freezers um, as sort of a precaution in case more vaccine needs to be made. Um and uh, now polio is very close to being eliminated. Uh, polio is a very dangerous vaccine. So if you, if you think about what your risk was of, of dying from smallpox, um, which was anywhere from 10 to 30% to your risk of, of, of being injured by a smallpox vaccine, which was almost zero, um, that's the, that's the risk I'm willing to take. And I think if you look at the balance of those risks, um, because there, there is no medical treatment in the world without risk. Um, it's because you're, you're doing some kind of intervention. Um, you have to look at how likely are you to get the disease? Um, how severe can the disease be? Um, how would you live with yourself if you spread it to someone else who died? Um, and then look at what data exists about what the risks are of the vaccine. So to me, um, in every case I, I've looked at, or almost every case, the, the when there have been issues with a vaccine, and it has happened, as you, as you note, a couple of times in the past, um, it's always something that has to be balanced against the disease itself. Um, so to, to come back around to COVID, people say, well, it's only 2% or it's only 1% um, death rate or it's only old people. Well, but 
if you're if you're looking at these these twenty thousand people who got the tr- the vaccine in the trial, none of whom developed any symptoms, and if you even had one in in two, twenty two thousand, um, now compare that to if those twenty two thousand people had all gotten coronavirus, on average about four hundred of them would be dead. Um, compared to no no deaths. So 400 versus zero. Um, I, that's, I want to be in the zero group. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, when I, I think I read in your book, um, specifically regarding smallpox and, and the scale, that 300 million people died of smallpox in the 20th century is is that a correct recollection i'm gonna have to recall what i wrote too that's probably pretty close hundreds of millions um yeah yeah that's and, a number yeah i mean look and and i think we tend to think of of deaths from disease differently than we think about other deaths because um look at look at what happened a couple days ago and this is going to date your the, the podcast uh Look at what happened with when four or five people died during the, the siege on the Capitol, um, and the those are those are tragic deaths. And in the same day, um, about thirty five hundred, thirty eight hundred people died of coronavirus. Um, and we're going to talk a lot more about those five people than we will about those thirty eight hundred people. Um. But 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 yeah, the the infectious disease burden um, that used to kill um, kill many many thousands of people in, in large percentages of the population has significantly been reduced through a variety of of mechanisms through us learning about antibiotics through learning about sanitation and hand washing and mask wearing and significantly through through vaccination. Um, so it's been a very, very effective set of technologies from taking us to from a world where we have to live in constant fear of death from infectious disease to a world where we, we usually don't have to think about them too much. I mean, think of how surprised people were when coronavirus started coming into the news and how ill-prepared we were for a pandemic of a type that um, used to be common. Yeah. Yeah. So there is sort of a, a litany of, um, issues that come up again and again, I think, you know, in in conversations with, with folks that oppose vaccines. Um, one is, you know, the correlation between the MMR vaccine and ASD, uh, autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose somewhere tied into that is some kind of correlation between thimerosal or perhaps aluminum and ASD and auto and other autoimmune diseases. So I wonder if you could address those concerns for a moment. I can try. I mean, I, I put a lot about it in the book, yeah. But so I'm, I'm going to try and condense some of that. So, um, in 1998, 
<laughs> Wakefield had the paper where he um, he and there's there's another book out now which I I think this, I'm told is very good. I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, by Brian Wakefield, not Brian Brian Deer about Andrew Wakefield. Right. So he this paper made the claim that children who had received the MMR vaccine, um, which did not contain thimerosal, or I, and I don't believe contained aluminum, uh, was causing in a small number of children he had observed what a, a new kind of autism, um, which was what he called regressive autism. So the idea being that the autism symptoms showed up after uh, normal autism symptoms are detected or, or, or normally detected um, and that it caused the children to regress. Uh, and he hypothesized that um, autism is caused by measles virus um, or an immune response in the gut to the vaccine. Um, and he, he had a press conference and he sort of took over the press conference from the other speakers and that became a news story. And that sort of spread a, a, a message that, that linked forever in the public perception, the measles vaccine with the development of autism. Uh, separately, um, back in the nineties, um, there was, so when you have a, a, a dose of vaccine, um, one of the challenges that you have is getting it such that you can reuse a, a vial because you have to manufacture every vial anew for every vaccination that multiplies by hundreds of millions, the number of vials you have to produce. But if you can put multiple doses in a single vial, then that, that solves a, a distribution problem. So the way they did that was to uh, include uh, thimerosal in certain multi-dose vials of certain vaccines. Uh, and that is a chemical compound that amongst uh, many other atoms contains atoms of mercury. And so uh, there was concern that even though this dose of mercury the children were getting from vaccines is, is, is relatively small and it's in a form of mercury that is cleared from the body very quickly. Uh, some people became concerned that this small dose of mercury could cause neurological problems. Um, and at, at the time there wasn't any, dis I don't believe there was discussion of autism. Um, there, there was phrased in terms of, um, of, of neurological problems, but uh, over time that and Wakefield became conflated sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, eventually these concerns got to the people in, in government who were making the decisions and they said, well, out of an abundance of caution, let's, they had a meeting to discuss this. So let's, let's take thimerosal out of our vaccines and we will um, recommend single dose versions of vaccines. And so Majority of vaccines that children were getting switched to um, single dose, um, with the exception of one uh, the flu shot that I think 
now even that is, that eventually became less and less common. Um, so then uh, the after that switch, the 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 rate of autism um, diagnoses continued to increase, and didn't go down or go away. Um, and then um, sort of blame eventually was shift, shifted to uh, aluminum um, in vaccines, which was used as an adjuvant. An adjuvant being something that um, is involved in um, stimulating an immune response, and so. Aluminum had been used in decades, for decades, and is still used as an adjuvant. Um, but you know, there's never been any ev- evidence suggesting that aluminum might be causing autism or linking autism to vaccination. Um, at least not, not sound scientific evidence can, gathered in the way that you would expect from, from science. It's done properly. And then what was the aftermath of the, the Wakefield study and its, and its publication in, in The Lancet and, um, and the efforts that kind of went into uh, the analysis of, of, the, of the credibility of that, that study? Yeah. Um, so, uh, at the time it came out, there was apparently quite a bit of internal controversy at Lancet because um, there were things in it that people just thought, well, that doesn't seem right. But if he did things the way he described he did them, we shouldn't, as peer reviewers, we should trust that the truth is being told. Um so it was eventually published at the same time as um, other things that were trying to contextualize it and put it in a way that other scientists would say, well, this is a preliminary result and it's only 11 people. Um, but that sort of got lost when the media got hold of it. Uh, and so some investigative journalism was done over time and it turned out that uh, Wakefield had um, some undisclosed conflicts of interest. Um, and and I don't n- want to get any of the, the details of the story too, too wrong. Um, but in effect, he had been paid by a lawyer who was uh, attempting to develop a case for parents who wanted to sue uh, vaccine manufacturers over in- injuries that they would have sustained uh, by measles vaccine. And so um, a lot of the way he recruited children to this to the study was not true, and he subjected them to, to medical procedures that um, he probably should not have. Um, and he had, uh, a few years prior, worked on, on patenting a single-dose measles vaccine that would have been separate from uh, mumps and rubella um, that I think would have been his alternative to the MMR vaccine. Um, so it, it turned out that he had had a financial interest and had committed scientific fraud. Um, and as these details came out, uh, the majority of the authors of the paper um, asked for it to be retracted um, or 
and said, we, 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 we didn't know, we, we don't want to be associated with this. Um, eventually, um, years later, Wakefield had his medical license retracted in, um, in, in England, and he came here, and he's been sort of um, become a media personality. You know, he made the documentary Vaxxed and has founded a couple of, of not-for-profits uh, over the years. Um, so that's where he is. Uh, and the the outcome in terms of public trust in vaccines has sort of been very damaging. Uh, there there were a series of studies now to investigate this link um, that, that he proposed um, using increasingly large, large sample sizes. Um, and they continually found no link. Um, and it became sort of these increasingly small territorial arguments made by anti-vaxxers about specific um, methodology. Um, so the, the vaxxed movie, for example, focused on someone from the CDC who had done statistics on a paper um, where he had claimed that if you um, did one statistical analysis, which was the wrong analysis, and uh, that 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 would indicate that a certain subgroup of African American boys who were vaccinated had a slightly larger chance of being diagnosed later with autism um, than than uh, than later vaccinated African American boys, um, and so he um, told that to someone who he thought was a friend, who was in fact an anti-vaccine activist who sort of blew that up into a massive cover-up by the CDC of uh, the facts of, of vaccines um, causing autism. Um, so you will still hear to this day um, people uh, not only um, attributing their children's autism to vaccines, um, I think treating their children with autism very badly um, because not only pathologizing them um, when, you know, many people with, with autism lead, you know, are fine. Um, they lead happy lives um, uh, and, 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 and don't need or deserve to be treated as if they have a disease. Um, but also, um, attributing that to, um, vaccination inappropriately has caused a lot of damage. And then I have, I have a chapter that's sort of talking about some of the, the treatments that people have subjected children to, um, for autism. Um, for example, miracle mineral solution, which is a a form of industrial bleach that people have given to their children, um, sometimes through enemas, and then they'll um, shed in some of their intestinal lining and they'll take a picture of what they'll call parasites and put it on Facebook. Um, and and uh, various therapies um, for a while, um, people were being offered Lupron therapy. And Lupron is a very um, potent 
drug that affects uh, the production of sex hormones. Um, and so sexual behavior in, in people with autism that can make them uncommunicative or, 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 or different, it can be very stigmatized. Uh, and so parents who wanted to delay the puberty of their children could go to certain um, who were then physicians and get a, a diagnosis of precocious puberty, um, which not meeting the, the actual requirements to diagnose someone with precocious puberty and receive then um, this Lupron, which would delay puberty on, on the very thin justification that um, Lupron had, uh, that, that testosterone had been at one point in a crystallography experiment, so studying its structure in a lab, been crystallized with mercury under conditions of high pressure and temperature. Um, so, so the idea being that the testosterone was somehow trapping mercury uh, from vaccines and causing uh, autism. Um, so uh, I think through these and other, other treatments, a lot of children have, have suffered. Um, and a lot of children have been uh, subjected to unnecessary suffering in the name of curing their autism. Um, that's part of the legacy of, of Wakefield. Yeah. Do you, in your opinion, do you attribute the increase in the diagnosis of autism to actual growing numbers of autism or had they been underdiagnosed previously? Um, how do you square that exactly in your opinion? I think one of the most telling things uh, is that the growth of autism in recent years has been um, in minority groups. And you say, well, well, why would that happen? Well, it would happen because of the growth of wealth in, in minority groups. So the ability to seek treatment, um, the ability to get a diagnosis. Um, you know, autism was only discovered uh, less than a century ago. Um, and, but it existed prior to that. Um, and so there was also um, some legislative changes that led to an increase in diagnoses where um, it became possible to get financial assistance and extra help for children with autism if they received the diagnosis. Uh, so there was a change in the incentives um, that that to, for, toward diagnosis that I, ex, I think explains the majority of the increase in the diagnoses of, of autism. Um, no one has ever convincingly uh, published data that's, that in my reading um, attributes the development of autism to solely environmental factors. Um, however, there, there does, um, based on a variety of lines of evidence, appear to be a, a variety of underlying genetic factors um, that, that can lead to 
um, behaviors on the autism spectrum. Right. And autism, as far as I understand it, it cannot be traced to any one particular gene. It's kind of sort of a, it's reflected in sort of a confluence of systems or symptoms and behaviors. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so, so when we say autism, we're actually, again, it's this word that, that means a lot of different things. Um, and, and so a variety of behaviors have been identified and seem to be linked, um, and have some commonalities. And so people have said, well, these seem to be linked together. So we're going to call these, all of these things, autism. Um, and the what exactly what behaviors and in what degree get called autism or autism spectrum um, has changed over the years uh, and has been redefined at different times and become more inclusive uh, of different sets of behaviors. Um, now, there are a few um, genetic things that can cause on their own, that are sufficient on their own to cause uh, people to have behaviors that are on this autism spectrum. Um, fragile X syndrome being an example. Uh, however, for the most part, it seems like the genetic causes underlying autism are multifactorial. Um, so it, I think it's helpful to compare it to something else like height. So there's no one tall gene. Um, that you have two sizes of human, tall and short, right? If you look at humans, there's a, a Gaussian distribution, a bell curve for height. So there are some people who are short and there are some people who are tall. Um, and in fact, it's bimodal because women tend to be shorter than men. Um, so um, that one genetic influence of XX versus XY has a big impact on... Um, the trait of height. And um, there are lots of other little genetic changes that have littler impacts. And the sum of all those little differences in your genes um, and you know your nutrition as you grow up and, and things like that ends up being expressed as what we would call the phenotype of adult height. So very likely um, autism has a lot of little changes that affect its development that are genetic and interact with the environment and influence the development of the behaviors that get described as autism spectrum disorder or autism spectrum behaviors. Got it. So let's change our focus slightly um, to another topic that seems to uh, come up again and again as it pertains to vaccines um, and misaligned incentives, et cetera. And that's, you know, with pharma, with big pharma. And I think one of the, um, one of the discussion points that, that seems common is pharma's liability protection from class action um as it pertains to vaccine injury, which I believe was established as part of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act in the late 80s, I think 1986, I think. Um, 
Can you address that of why did that act come to be? What was the justifications for passing that law? And why was it necessary to immunize pharma from class action lawsuits with regards to vaccine injury? It's a pun. Um, yeah, so I can't necessarily, uh, I can't necessarily say that that's that this is the best solution. Um, I, I think it's probably not, but I can try and explain how it, how it came about. Um, so in 1974, there was a paper um, that, unlike Wakefield's paper, was not the result of of scientific misconduct but did turn out to be wrong, um, linking um, DPT vaccine to the development of neurological problems. Uh, and that uh, paper made the rounds uh, and um, sort of influenced a lot of people. And um, so then there were uh, a variety of countries that paused their, their progr- vaccination programs, followed by outbreaks of pertussis and um, the in the US there was a program that aired called vaccine roulette that influenced a lot of people to be frightened of vaccination there were a lot of books written and then there were lawyers these lawyers saw this as an opportunity to file lawsuits and so the number of companies manufacturing the DPT vaccine started to dwindle because there was a lot of now lawsuits being filed um, for to what seemed to be potential uh, paydays for, for these lawyers and, and the people filing lawsuits um, th- that they, they didn't have to prove that it had caused their injury. They just had to convince the judge or convince the jury and they were so they were making settlements, and it was becoming very expensive to continue to produce the vaccine. Um, and Congress uh, did not want to allow a situation to arise where no one was able to manufacture vaccine because it was too legally risky. They also did not want to have a situation arise where, um, if someone was legitimately injured by uh, by having an, a vaccine administered to them, they had no legal remedy. So their solution was to transfer the liability uh, from those companies to um, themselves and to fund through a small tax on every vaccination, a program that could potentially uh, that could potentially compensate people um, if they thought they had a injury from a vaccine or if they did. Um, so in, in thinking about it, they kind of have a hard challenge because just because someone says that they got sick and that happened at the same time they were vaccinated, that doesn't mean it happened because of the vaccination. Um, two things can happen at the same time and be unrelated. So, uh, initial. So they, um, the solution is to have sort of a legal process where um, 
competing experts could weigh in and where there was a list of um, outcomes that if they happen within a certain time period post-vaccination, that that would, um, that would be sufficient evidence to get compensation from the government. Um, and then people have argued about what should or should not be compensatable um, and what uh, kinds of evidence can be submitted, whether or not experts um, who, who speak at these events actually have to prove that there's scientific or medical justification, um, which now they do not uh, in order for a payout to be made um, and things like that. So that's how we got to where we are today. Um, I, again, I, I don't know that I can say that this is the best solution, but it's kind of the, the compromise that they came up with back then. Yeah, it's interesting because it certainly fuels um, a general outrage uh, with big pharma. Um, yeah. And certainly, like, you know, in your book, it, you know, you, you articulately address, you know, legitimate reasons why people, you know, might be disenchanted with, with big pharma. Certainly, you know, Merck's Vioxx drug or or more recently Sackler with, with Oxycontin. Um, but then, you know, examples of, of greed um, as reflected with kind of the EpiPen or Martin Scarelli, et cetera. Um, but also I think you point out that, that, uh, that people's perception around the greed associated with big pharma, which may be legitimate in many cases, may not completely apply to vaccines and the revenue generated by vaccines for pharmaceutical companies. So I wonder if you could just kind of unpack a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, so I'll never, having written a book about anti-vaccine movement, I'll never escape being called a big pharma shill. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although they, they have not paid me anything um, and I don't like them <laughs> for the most part. Um, yeah. So as you, as, as you, as you say, a lot of bad things have been done by, by big pharmaceutical companies and they have incentives, um, monetary incentives that don't necessarily align with the public's best interest. Um, and so and then there are you know things like the revolving door between regulators and the pharmaceutical industry, and there are um, you know, sort of closeness between um, certain physicians and the pharmaceutical. In- you know, all of these things have, have some sketch to them, um, sketchiness uh, to them. And so then the question: it, Are are they making a lot of money from vaccines? Well, no. On the on the scale of the amount of money vac- pharmaceutical companies make, uh, vaccines are a very small part. Um, they're they're kind of a loss leader um, in a lot of cases. Um, small scale. They make some money, and it's in the billions. But compared to the other drugs they make, not not a huge seller. Uh, and that's part of why it takes normally so long for vaccines to come to market is you have to put a lot of money into 
um, into getting something to market. It's very expensive. And governments tend not to tend not to fund the development. Um, so the pharmaceutical companies are the ones who are going to benefit from it financially. So they're the ones who should put up the money. And because of the amount of science that has to be get done to ensure that they're safe and effective, it can cost many millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to bring a new vaccine to market, uh, starting from the phase of basic lab research all the way through phase one, two, and three uh, trials. Um, so there's kind of a disincentive. Um, there were years ago um, coronavirus vaccines that that reached certain stages of development um, that, that were not seen as commercially viable. Um, so they had reached you know the, the research stage, but then no one wanted to do phase one trials because... Well, um, you know, who's, when, when is a coronavirus ever going to be a problem? Uh, how much money could we make from this? Um, so I, I, re- I really understand people who, are, who are, are, are mistrusting of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and my, my take is that I, I don't trust the companies. I trust the science. Um, so the science I'm able to see and read and interpret and um, there are biases that are produced by, uh, by corporate science, but there are also biases that are produced by academic science. Um, there's a file drawer effect there, which is, you know, positive publications that show positive results that confirm hypotheses tend to be published more than results that, that don't confirm hypotheses. And there are other kinds of biases that affect the, outcome uh, uh, the outcome uh, of, of science so so ultimately their financial motivation matters and I, we should pay attention to it but science is the final arbiter um, and the other thing I think it's important to contrast, you know, getting a, a vaccine that's manufactured by a corporation and say, well, I don't know what's in it. I don't know what I'm putting in my body. Uh, but then compare it to, say, the supplement industry, um, which is sort of all of the things that people say the pharmaceutical industry is, but but for real. Um, supplement industry uh, produces supplements where... Um, Legally, the burden to prove of proof has been shifted. So instead of having a company needing to prove that a supplement works, the government has to prove that it doesn't work. Um, and their safety standards are very lax or non-existent in terms of what goes into supplements. Um, there, there's many cases is no evidence that they're effective at all. Uh, and this is a, a multi-billion dollar industry um, selling people pills that they'll happily take that um, only get removed from the market when it can be shown that they actually have an effect. Uh, mm. So the, the focus on the pharmaceutical industry to me um, is important, but somewhat orthogonal to 
um, where the real problems lie in how we address our health um, and in terms of where we should be looking for 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 the the worst of corruption um, and and so ultimately I look at the science um, and people want to make it about people and about greed and those are important to pay attention to but it ultimately the science is what's important mm-hmm so let's shift just for a minute to more address head on the COVID vaccine. Um, I think over the summer in August, I saw a poll where nearly 50% or perhaps a little more of Americans were extremely skeptical about the vaccine. Um, certainly haste and, and science are, are not always best friends. Um, but since the relatively limited release, the confidence you know has generally grown, um, and I think the the need for it just feels more acute for people given the the case numbers and, and reported deaths. Um, and I, I wonder if you could address how these particular vaccines, well, at least the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, are different. You know, my understanding is that most vaccines generally contain either a killed or attenuated virus. Um, but these vaccines, at least Pfizer and Moderna, contain what is known as messenger RNA, which are these are the first vaccines that have been um, given any kind of use approval um, based around that technology. So I, I wonder if you could address that technology, what is messenger RNA, um, and how does it function? Yeah. Um, so like I said, vaccination is a, is a lot of different technologies. Um, and what do they share in common? They share in common. Um, they, they make use of your body's natural immune system, which is we have an immune system that has uh, multiple components from something as simple as your skin, keeping viruses and bacteria from just floating into your blood. So you have um, a immune response to pathogens that um, enter your body. Um, and it's been you know recognized for a long time that once you have a disease, Later on, you're you're a lot less likely to develop that disease again, um, and so to to go back to the smallpox example, people before vaccination existed would take um, a, a, some smallpox infected pus and they would scratch children with it on their arm, and they would develop a weak case of smallpox from that, um, but then they would remain immune, and so. What's happening is that you have a type of um, immune cell that's called a B cell that can become a memory B cell. And a memory B cell records information about a pathogen you've been previously been exposed to. And when you're challenged again with that pathogen, um, it can ramp up production of antibodies very quickly. So this um, innate ability your body has um, 
well, why instead of if giving you, you know, the full coronavirus, it can infect your cells, why not give it just a piece of the coronavirus that can that can't infect your cells? So there's a few ways you could approach that. Um, one would be to make just the spike protein or just a surface protein from, from the virus. And um, then you will make antibodies against that and you'll make memory B cells. And then in the future, if a real virus infects you, um, those antibodies will protect you. Uh, uh, another approach would be to, um, to kill a virus, attenuate it, or attenuate it so that it can't infect you. Um, and then, uh, so, so that, that first case would be like a recombinant um, mm-hmm. vaccine. And then this would be one where recombinant protein vaccine and, or could have an attenuated or killed virus vaccine where you um, damage the, the virus such that it cannot uh, infect you. And those are some, some somewhat older technologies that are, that are very tested. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines uh, make use of a technology that's been tested a lot, um, but hasn't rolled out until recently, um, called mRNA vaccines or nucleic acid vaccines. So the way a virus, or let's let's go to, to talk about the cell, actually. Uh, so the way a cell makes proteins is it has stored on DNA um, a code, and that code um, is read by something called a tRNA into um, an mRNA, a messenger RNA, which is a another kind of nucleic acid similar to DNA, uh, but single-stranded. And that RNA, mRNA is then read by other proteins, um, and those give instructions to assemble a protein. So this is kind of like the blueprints for a protein. Um, and then once they've been read, they're destroyed and no more protein can get made until more mRNA is, is produced. And that's sort of how the cell regulates the amount of, of protein that's produced is how much mRNA um, is produced. And actually, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised how um, how similar between species um, the actual proteins are, um, and and how much of the differences between species is regulation of the amount of protein produced and when. But that's that's an aside, that's an aside. Um, so let's say you were to put some mRNA in a cell that came from outside um, that that wasn't a part of your DNA. Um, what would happen? Well, it would do the same thing it would do to its own mRNA. It would make protein and it would then be destroyed. And so the idea um, of uh, getting cells to take up mRNA and then make the viral proteins um, is appealing because um, you don't have to, to deal with a live or attenuated virus. Um, nucleic acids are, are pretty pretty simple to make nowadays. Um, and you can very rapidly uh, update them. So we could, um, if a new coronavirus emerges, slightly modify it and have a vaccine ready to go. Hmm. Um, so, so this is a potentially very a powerful way of developing vaccines rapidly 
um, that could mean that we have a much more rapid response next time because now we have all this the safety data. Um, and so the challenges with this technology are uh, one stability of RNA. Um, so RNA, like I said, is single stranded, which means it's a lot less stable than DNA. Um, DNA, we have people, you know, collecting DNA from from Neanderthals and sequencing it. Um, so it can last sometimes hundreds of years. And RNA, the half-life is a lot shorter. Um, it's on the sometimes on the order of days or hours. So that that's involved. That's what people talk about the cold chain problem. Um, this has to be kept cold so it stays stable, uh, which is part of why the rollout has been sort of confusing is you have to find places with freezers that can, can stay cold enough to, to keep it stable. Uh, and so um, the, the components of the vaccine are mRNA, um, water, um, sugar, uh, salt, and then a, a, a fatty acid. And why is the fatty acid there? It's to help it cross cell membranes. Um, so uh, cell membranes are uh, sort of lipid rich and oil and water do not mix very well. So um, that keeps things from crossing cell membranes easily if they're water soluble. So you add a fatty acid, it helps it cross cell membranes and get the cell to make the, the viral protein that is then recognized by the immune system. Um, so that's kind of what's going on with those, uh, with those vaccines. You, you, mRNA cannot alter your DNA. Um, that's, that's not an effect that's ever happened in, in biology. Yeah, I think that that is certainly one of the social media memes that is circulating of the potential for RNA to integrate into the DNA of the vaccinated cell um, and to, you know, to alter our, our DNA. But from your science or your expertise, that's not possible. No, that's not going to happen. Um, so, I mean, I've, I took the, yeah. I've been vaccinated. Oh, yeah. That's my, that's my level of trust is, I know a fair amount about the science, not everything, um, but I'm not a vaccinologist, but I know enough about it and I felt safe getting it. And for people that are concerned about the ingredients in the vaccine, I mean, you pretty much dispelled it out. It's a relatively, as I understand it, simple vaccine. It's essentially mRNA, lipids, and and saline or um, basically things that, that already exist within the body. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, that's a fair understanding. I mean, what doesn't exist in the body um, already is the information that's in the sequence of the RNA, mRNA to make a portion of the spike protein. Right. Um, to be clear, that sequence is being generated in a lab upon after identifying the protein that exists within the virus and then replicating it in the lab to then be able to send to 
the cell to produce the protein that stimulates the immune system to make the antibodies to bind to the antigen. <laughs> is, that a, is that a fair? Yeah. So we, um, we've gotten very good in the last few years at sequencing. This is a technology um, that's in the last uh, 30 years has really taken off. Um, so the Human Genome Project um, was this was a huge deal 20 years ago where um, finally, we had the sequence of one human genome. And now for a couple thousand dollars um, in a few days, you can sequence someone's genome. Uh, it's, it's, it's really gotten down in price. And so, you know, within days, I think, of this, this new variant being discovered, we had a sequence for it, um, for all of the proteins in it. Um, there's only a handful of, of, of proteins in a virus, um, in, in this virus, um, so uh, that sequence was then turned into computer code, uh, in the, the so the code representing what are the nucleotide sequence of the DNA, represented as letters, and then uh, this something I just did this morning is call is email a company that makes plasmids. Um, so those are circular pieces of DNA, and and say hey, can you make a plasmid with with X sequence and they'll say sure it'll be a, a whole bunch of money and i say okay <laughs> so, um yeah, these plasmids i ordered are going to be like three thousand dollars um so these they'll they'll then use a gene a, a synthesizer and, and make this and do cloning steps and make a plasmid um and then that can be turned into uh mrna um yeah the 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 industrial scale at which they're making um, our mRNA is, is pretty impressive to me. It's because I do I do everything at the the lab bench one lab scale. Um, so to be able to do that at the industrial scale to generate millions of doses is is incredibly impressive. Um, there's probably a lot of technology in that that I do not understand um, um, at the level I would I would like to. But yeah. Um, so then that mRNA that's eventually produced um, is, is then packaged with a lipid and um, it's made into a vaccine dose. Uh, so it, it, the components um, are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty simple um, in terms of biology, pretty well understood. And what do you make of some of the allergic reactions that have been reported? We've seen some cases of anaphylaxis and some isolated cases of Bell's palsy. Um, what is your analysis of some of that, uh, of some of those allergic reactions? And I suppose, is, is there a misunderstanding that people have between allergic reactions and side effects? So I don't, I haven't looked too deep into the allergic reactions yet. Um, for the Bell's palsy, um, there was an observation that a small number of people had Bell's palsy in the in the experimental group for the trial. But then, um, comparing that number to the base rate in the population, it was identical to the or, or very very close to the base rate in the population. So the, the regulators were looking at it, were saying, "Well, this is probably nothing, but let's keep our eyes on it as this rolls out." Um, and then um, p 
people having allergic reactions is a possibility. Um, you know, it, it's hard to have a salt allergy because there's salt in your blood. Hard to have a sugar allergy, but me, you know, maybe there's something happening. Um, allergy is your immune system overreacting to something. Um, so it's worth looking at and studying. Um, but, um, I think sometimes there's a tendency to look at the intervention, um, that you did. And if you had, uh, a, an allergic reaction on a day or you got, you know, stuffed up or something, you might attribute that to whatever you were doing recently. Oh, I, I had to walk outside near some flowers and there's a lot of pollen out or I got vaccinated. Um, so, you know, it, it takes very large scale studies to to show that there's an effect and that it's real. Um, and if it is real, it's it's so rare that um, it might not show up in a study of twenty two thousand people. Um, it, I mean the the that's why they continue to study these after they roll out. Um, you know, if, if you have an allergy to spike protein, um, you're going to have that reaction regardless of whether you got the vaccine or the, or the coronavirus, I guess. Um, right. But, you know, it's, it's worth continuing to look at the data and, and see what, what comes from it. Yeah. I, suppose kind of just in summation because i think you've done a incredibly thorough job at, at addressing so many of the you know concerns that people have um i wonder if you have sort of kind of broader or greater determinations on a moral and ethical basis as they relate to vaccines kind of social contract, community, et cetera, that you could punctuate this conversation with? Yeah. Um, well, I, again, I'm not an ethicist or philosopher, but I'll try. <laughs> um, that's one, That was one of the things where, when I was writing the book, I got to a point where I, I got on a tangent of reading uh, Rousseau, Locke, um, yeah, Benjamin Jesty, uh, not Jesty. Um, reading a variety of of of, uh, of, of philosophers um, to try and understand some of these ethical foundations um, that were going into the way people think about um, rights, um, both individual rights and the idea of collective rights, um, and collective risks, um, and the war against all and, and, and things like that. So, yeah, um, there's, I think very common in our culture, an idea of individualism where we, we make decisions for ourselves and we see ourselves as having sort of infinite rights to make decisions for ourselves. And we do have a lot of those rights. Um, and whether or not we see those rights as coming from the 
uh, from a supernatural source or from uh, uh, the Constitution or from the laws made by people or by an analysis of ethics, um, I think we need to acknowledge and, and talk about them. Um, so people should have a right to make medical decisions for themselves. They should have a right to medical privacy. Um, where questions arise is where those individual rights start to overlap or infract on collective rights. Um, the, the kind of throwaway saying people have is, you know, your right to throw a punch ends at my face. Um, so how much right do you have not to be vaccinated when that's contributing to a pandemic that's killing people? Um, well, uh, again, this is one of those things which is probably not a perfect solution. There's what's been arrived at through courts and, and laws and ethicists. And, and so, you know, the gov governments have generally said, we are not going to hold you down and force you to be vaccinated. Um, and Supreme Court has said that. However, they've said also that in order to uh, protect um, in, you know, the collective, um, sort of in the same way that during a war, um, the government will sometimes reduce other rates or, 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 um, or ask things of the population that they would not otherwise in order to protect, um, protect the population at large, that the government can um, fine you if you, don't, if you choose not to be vaccinated or they can make rules to that effect. Um, that schools can require vaccination or that states can require vaccinations for schools um, and things uh, along those lines. Um, so you end up with sort of this patchwork of um, laws and, and rules with regards to specific vaccines. Certain workplaces will likely require the coronavirus vaccine. Um, certain uh, jurisdictions and schools will require it. Um, now, um, I think those are discussions that are going to sort of play out as more vaccine doses become available. Um, and one of the things about vaccination is that the more, uh, people who are vaccinated, uh, the better it will work. Uh, because no vaccine is 100% effective. Um, you know, sometimes that immunity that you aren't able to generate enough immunity or doesn't interact well with you or it doesn't take. And then, you know, so some percentage of the population who get vaccinated will still be at risk. Um, and if you have enough people walking around vaccinated, those people are protected or people who can't get vaccinated because they are immune compromised or, um, have an allergy or, or, or some other reason, or they're having a cancer treatment. So um, it, for um, vaccines this effective, um, we probably only need about 70% of the population to be vaccinated. Uh, and to get to that level, um, it's not clear whether or not people will do that um, without additional incentives. Um, I really wanted to get vaccinated, uh, um, you know, because I want to visit my parents who are getting older. Um, and, uh, I, 
I think a lot of people want to be able to travel freely, to, to go into stores, to have parties, to, to go to work normally and have social interactions. Um, we've now been living in a, in a very uncomfortable way for a year. Um, and this provides us with a, a, a way to get out of this um, sort of social isolation that, that so many of us have been uh, living with. Uh, and that being said, I think a lot of the people who who ignore um, lockdowns and mask laws and so forth, probably also a lot of the people who are going to refuse vaccination. So um, I don't know the degree to which um, governments will have to create fines or, or requirements for school or, or things of that nature. Um, I'm glad I'm not the person who has to make those decisions. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated set of factors that go into a proper moral determination around it. And, and I guess, you know, that's where I always come back to with this issue is that it is so incredibly nuanced and complicated um, but our our forums for public discourse cannot always accommodate nuance and complication. Um, you know, obviously the the public square has kind of moved to Facebook. You know, where kind of sensationalism and hyperbole and memes, um, you know, have have kind of primacy and and dominance. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the, um, you know, when I've looked at COVID-19 and as, as virulent and, and dangerous as, as the virus is itself, I think in some ways it sort of shined a light or put a microscope to, you know, other ethical issues within our culture, certainly kind of income inequality um, that often also breaks down around racial lines. And you, know, you see the people that are most impacted or, or suffer from disproportionate fatalities with regards to COVID tend to be those, you know, who have comorbidities. And those often tend to be people that are, you know, can't isolate at home and do their jobs on Zoom um, that might not have access to healthcare um, that might not be able to avail themselves of, of the healthiest food, you know, perhaps they, you know, live in food deserts, you know, et cetera. And, you know, when you start to unpack all of that and just as an individual assess your civic responsibility around like, hey, do I get this vaccine or not? And who am I getting it for? Am I getting it for myself? Am I getting it for my family? Um, am I getting it for people that I don't know? Um, and in, in some ways, maybe if there's any silver lining to this conundrum, it's actually getting people to ask those very questions of themselves um, in search of, I guess, a notion of, of un of discovering some greater sorts of interdependence or interconnectivity between people, um, that self-interest and 
the collective good can be one and the same thing. Um, and, and that idea obviously goes well beyond just COVID and vaccination, but I think addresses many of the issues that society is facing right now. So I'm, I'm glad you're attacking this from many different angles, both from one of, of rigorous science, but also one uh, from an angle of, of ethics and morality, because I, I think they're, they're intertwined. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for, for your time, Jonathan, and for your work. And, uh, I'm sure this is not the last chapter of it. Um, because I know that you're have great, um, concerns and interest in, how society functions, um, the problem of kind of misinformation and the spread of weaponized misinformation. So, you know, I hope we get to uh, continue to explore some of these issues. And, and I apologize in advance for the emails you're about to get uh, from from people about having a vaccine episode. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I agree. Um, it's it's going to come. In a lot of cases, it's going to come down to, uh, I think, a question of privilege. Um, you have to have a lot of, a lot of social privilege to, to say I don't need to protect anyone around me. I'm okay, so, so I'm not going to, to get vaccinated. Um, but thank you for having me on, um, and have a good uh, rest of your afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, we'll speak again. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Jonathan Berman. You can learn more about Jonathan and his work at jonathanmaxberman.com. And you are always welcome to drop me a line directly at Jeff K at onecommune.com. I read every email. And that's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.